Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America, by Christian Williams. This is part two of chapter one, entitled Police Brutality in Theory and Practice. A look at the numbers. According to a 1996 Justice Department survey, 20% of the American public had direct contact with the police during the previous year. Most of those contacts took the form of traffic stops, and most were unremarkable. Only 1 in 500 residents was subject to the use of force, or the threat of force. Three years later, the Justice Department repeated this study, this time with a sample almost 15 times as large. The results were nearly identical. 21% of the population had contact with the police in 1999, and 1 in 500 fell victim to violence or threats of violence. Now, that may not sound like a lot of people until you realize that 1 in 500 is a polite way of saying nearly half a million. An estimated 471,000 people in 1996 and 422,000 in 1999. 400,000 people, if we got them all together, would make a fair-sized city larger than Atlanta, and almost as large as Fresno, California. And when you orient yourself to the fact that this city could be reproduced every year, you start to get some picture of how common police violence really is. Another way of looking at the figures is that out of every 100 people the police come into contact with, they will threaten or use force against one of them, 0.96%. This rate is nearly twice as high for black people and Latinos who experience force or the threat thereof in 2% of their interactions with police. Among these 422,000 people, the most common form of violence they suffered involved being pushed or grabbed. Approximately 20% were threatened, but not subject to actual physical violence. At the other end of the curve, another 20% reported injuries. More than three quarters of the victims, 76%, characterized the force as excessive, and the, quote, vast majority, 92%, of persons experiencing the threat or use of force said the police acted improperly, unquote. According to a Justice Department study of six police agencies, police use force in 17.1% of all adult custody arrests, or 18.9% if we include threats of force. Suspects, in contrast, use force against the police in less than 3% of arrest cases. More specifically, suspects employ weaponless tactics in 1.9% of arrests and use weapons in 0.7%. Police, meanwhile, use weaponless tactics in 15.8% of arrests and use weapons in about 2.1%. The police, in short, use force far more often than is used against them. With police using force in about one of every six arrests, it strikes me as an inescapable fact that police violence is quite routine, but most studies resist this conclusion, insisting that the use of force is exceptional. The police themselves seem untroubled by the level of violence within their departments. According to a National Institute of Justice study on police attitudes toward abuse of authority, 24.5% of police surveyed agreed or strongly agreed that, quote, it is sometimes acceptable to use more force than is legally allowable to control someone who physically assaults an officer, unquote. 31.1% contended that, quote, police are not permitted to use as much force as is often necessary in making arrests, unquote and 42.2% felt that, quote, always following the rules is not compatible with getting the job done, unquote. Interestingly, 62.4% of police felt that officers in their department seldom, quote, use more force than is necessary to make an arrest, unquote. 
16% maintained that the police never do, and 21.7% said that police sometimes, often, or always use excessive force. Sociologist Rodney Stark, writing well before the study in question, explained this tendency to understate the incidence of violence. Quote, if each policeman only loses his temper once or twice a year and roughs someone up, a very large number of citizens will get roughed up during the year. Thus, their violence may seem occasional to individual policemen, when in fact, for the force as a whole, it is routine. Of course, the propensity for violence is not distributed evenly throughout police departments. The Independent Commission on the Los Angeles Police Department, also called the Christopher Commission, noted, quote, of nearly 6,000 officers identified as involved in use of force from January 1987 through March 1991, more than 4,000 had less than five reports each, but 63 officers had 20 or more reports each. The top 5% of officers, ranked by number of reports, accounted for more than 20% of all reports, and the top 10% accounted for 33%. Unquote. These numbers may not be as comforting as they first seem. For one thing, 6,000 cops is still quite a lot, even when the occasions of their violence are spread over four years. In fact, it seems the Christopher Commission fell into precisely the trap that Rodney Stark described. By emphasizing the idea that most officers rarely use force, they demonstrate that brutality is individually rare while obscuring the fact that it is collectively common. 4,000 officers, with fewer than five reports each, together could have nearly 20,000 such reports. Moreover, the unruly 5%, in numerical terms, would add up to about 300 officers. One retired LAPD sergeant told the Christopher Commission that there were at least one or two cops in every division who regularly use excessive force. This would imply that not only is brutality routine, it's widespread. But however common police brutality may be, its victims are not a perfect cross-section of the American public. In 1999, for example, 86.9% of the victims of police violence were male, and 55.3% were between the ages of 16 and 24. While most victims were white, 58.9%, black people and Latinos were victimized in numbers significantly out of proportion to their representation in the general population. Latinos make up 10.2% of the population nationally, but accounted for 15.5% of those victimized by police. Black people constitute 11.4% of the population, and 22.6% of those facing police violence. Of those killed by police from 1976 to 1998, 42% were black. These figures, which I have recited with relatively little comment, offer only a very limited representation of police violence. The studies producing these numbers, which, with their statistics and their charts, seem altogether too sanitized. They should, to do the subject justice, come smeared with blood, with numbers surrounded by chalk outlines. The real cost of police violence, the human cost, is too easily forgotten, figured away, buried under a mountain of decimal points. We must not allow that to happen. We must bear in mind, always, that each of these statistics represents a tragedy. Behind each lies real pain, humiliation, indignity, often injustice, and sometimes death. Our understanding of police brutality relies on our ability to hear the scream behind the statistic. Once we do, the rage of L.A., of Miami, of Cincinnati becomes comprehensible. Their fires may burn inside us. In Uprooting Racism, Paul Kival makes a useful comparison between the rhetoric abusive men employ to justify beating up their girlfriends, wives, or children, 
and the publicly traded justifications for widespread racism. He writes, quote, During the first few years that I worked with men who were violent, I was continually perplexed by their inability to see the effects of their actions and their ability to deny the violence they had done to their partners or children. I only slowly became aware of the complex set of tactics that men used to make violence against women invisible and to avoid taking responsibility for their actions. These tactics are listed below in the rough order that men employ them. 1. Denial. I didn't hit her. 2. Minimization. It was only a slap. 3. Blame. She asked for it. 4. Redefinition. It was mutual combat. 5. Unintentionality. Things got out of hand. 6. It's over now. I'll never do it again. 7. It's only a few men. Most men wouldn't hurt a woman. 8. Counterattack. She controls everything. 9. Competing victimization. Everybody is against men. Unquote. Kival goes on to detail the ways these nine tactics are used to excuse or deny institutionalized racism. Each of these tactics also has its police analogy, both as applied to individual cases and in regard to the general issue of police brutality. Here are a few examples. 1. Denial. The professionalism and restraint displayed by police officers, supervisors, and commanders on the front line was nothing short of outstanding. And America does not have a human rights problem. 2. Minimization. The injuries were of a minor nature. And Police use force infrequently. 3. Blame. This guy isn't Mr. Innocent Citizen either, not by a long shot. And they died because they were criminals. 4. Redefinition. It was mutual combat, resisting arrest, and the use of force is necessary to protect yourself. 5. Unintentionality. Officers have no choice but to use deadly force against an assailant who is deliberately trying to kill them. 6. It's over now. We're making changes, and we will change our training. We will do everything in our power to make sure it never happens again. 7. A small proportion of officers are disproportionately involved in use of force incidents. And if we determine that the officers were out of line, it is an aberration. 8. Counterattack. The only thing they understand is physical force and pain, and people make complaints to get out of trouble. 9. Competing victimization. The police are in constant danger, and liberals are prejudiced against police, much as many white police are biased against Negroes, and the police are the most downtrodden, oppressed, dislocated minority in America. Another commonly invoked rationale for justifying police violence is, 10. The hero defense. The police routinely do what the rest of us don't. They risk their lives to keep the peace. For that selfless bravery, they deserve glory, laud, and honor. And without the police, anarchy would be rife in this country, and civilization now existing on this hemisphere would perish. And the police create a sense of community that makes social life possible. And they alone stand guard at the upstairs door of hell. This list is by no means exhaustive, but it should offer something of the tone that these excuses can take. Many of these approaches overlap, and often several are used in conjunction. For example, LAPD Sergeant Stacy Kuhn offers this explanation for the beating of Rodney King. 
quote, From our view, and based on what he had already done, Rodney King was trying to assault an officer, maybe grab a gun. And when he was not moving, he seemed to be looking for an opportunity to hurt somebody, his eyes darting this way and that. So, we'd had to use force to make him respond to our commands, to make him lie still so we could neutralize this guy's threat to other people and himself. The force we used was well within the guidelines of the Los Angeles Police Department. I had made sure of that. And I was proud of the professionalism the officers had shown in subduing a really monster guy, a felony evader seen committing numerous traffic violations." Unquote. In three paragraphs, Kuhn employs minimization, blame, redefinition, unintentionality, counterattacks, competing victimization, and the hero defense. As is usual, his little story stresses the possible danger of the situation, and elsewhere, Kuhn emphasizes the generalizable sense of danger that officers experience. Quote, We'd all thought that maybe we were going to get lured into something. It's happened before. How many times have you read about a cop getting killed after stopping somebody for a speeding violation? Unquote. The danger of the job is a constant theme in the defense of police violence. It is implicit, or sometimes explicit, in about half of the excuses listed above. By pointing to the dangers of the job, the excuse makers don't only defend police actions in particular circumstances, which might actually have been dangerous, but as often as not take the opportunity to mount a general defense of the police. This is a clever bit of sophistry, as cynical as a Memorial Day speech during wartime. It's one thing to make a banner of the bloody uniform when discussing a case where cops actually were in danger, but quite another to do so when they might have been in danger, or only thought that they were. The fact that policing is risky, by this view, seems to justify in advance whatever measures the police feel necessary to employ. This point lies at the center of the hero defense. Its genius is that it's so hard to answer. Few people are indifferent to the death of a police officer, especially when they feel, though only in some vague patriotic kind of way, that it occurred because the officer was selflessly working, as former Philadelphia City solicitor Sheldon Albert put it, quote, so that you and I and our families and our children can walk on the streets." Unquote. The flaw of the hero defense, however, is both simple and, if you'll pardon the term, fatal. Policing is not so dangerous as we're led to believe. The dangers of the job. In 2001, 140 cops were murdered on the job. Most of these, 71, were killed in the September 11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The remaining 69 deaths represent 65 separate incidents, most commonly domestic disturbances and traffic stops. Additionally, 77 officers died in on-duty accidents. The 2001 figures are exceptional, skewed by the fact that more cops died in one day than in the entire rest of the year combined. Outside of the World Trade Center attack, only three officers were intentionally killed in the entire northeastern United States. If we bracket the anomaly of September 11th, we get a more representative picture of the dangers police face. More officers died in accidents, 77, than were murdered, 69. This is not unusual. Between 1995 and 2000, 360 cops were murdered and 403 died in accidents. To take just one year's figures, 135 cops died in 2000. This number represents 51 murders and 84 accidents. Naturally, it is not to be lost sight of that these numbers represent human lives, not widgets or sacks of potatoes. But let's remember that there were 5,915 
fatal work injuries in 2000. Policing may be dangerous, but it's not the most dangerous job available. In terms of total fatalities, more truck drivers are killed than any other kind of worker. 852 in the year 2000. A better measure of occupational risk, however, is the rate of work-related deaths per 100,000 workers. In 2000, for example, it was 27.6 for truck drivers. At 12.1 deaths per 100,000, policing is slightly less dangerous than mowing lawns, cutting hedges, and running a wood chipper. Groundskeepers suffer 14.9 deaths per 100,000. By occupation, the highest rate of fatalities is among timber cutters at 122.1 per 100,000. By industry, mining and farming are the most dangerous. Quote, the mining industry recorded a rate of 30.0 fatal work injuries per 100,000 workers in 2000, the highest of any industry and about seven times the rate for all workers. Agriculture recorded the second highest rate in 2000, 20.9 fatalities per 100,000 workers. Unquote. The rate for all occupations taken together is 4.3 per 100,000 workers. Where are the headlines, the memorials, the honor guards, and the sorrowful renderings of taps for these workers? Where are the mayoral speeches, the newspaper editorials, the sober reflections that these brave men and women died, and that others risked their lives daily so that we might continue to enjoy the benefits of modern society? Policing, it seems, is the only industry that both exaggerates and advertises its dangers. It has done so at a high cost and to great advantage, though, as is so often the case, the costs are not borne by the same people who reap the benefits. The overblown image of police heroism and the obsession with officer safety, Rodney Stark's term, do not only serve to justify police violence after the fact by providing such justification, they legitimize violence and thus make it more likely. The exaggerated sense of danger has helped to reorder police priorities to the detriment of public interest. Stark argues that, quote, The police ought to understand clearly that they're being paid to take a certain degree of risk and that their safety does not come before public safety or the common good. Unfortunately, the police typically place their safety first, and in recent years we have come to accept this priority, unquote. By way of counterpoint, Stark describes the performance of U.S. Marshals, deployed to protect James Meredith during his September 1962 entrance into the University of Mississippi. 200 marshals faced off with a crowd of 2,000 white people determined to prevent the school's integration. The marshals stood for hours, while the crowd attacked them with bricks and sporadic sniper fire. 29 marshals were injured, but they never broke ranks or, fixed or fired their weapons. Recalling this episode, Consider how little we have come to expect of the police, and how greatly we have come to share their obsession with their own safety. The police exaggerate the dangers they face, both in general sense and in the particular cases where bloodied victims are charged with assault or resisting arrest, and the officer is left unharmed. The fact is, the police produce more casualties than they suffer. Quote, Since 1976, an average of 79 police officers have been murdered each year in the line of duty. Unquote. Altogether, 1,820 law enforcement officers were murdered during the 22-year period between 1976 and 1998. In the same time, the police killed 8,578 people, averaging 373 annually, more than one a day. If we do the math, we see that police kill almost five times as often as they are killed.
I will surely be accused of ghoulishly keeping score, of measuring the differences where I should be emphasizing the shared tragedy, of subtracting when I ought to be adding. It isn't my purpose here to disregard the deaths of police, only to put them in perspective. The disparity between the violence police face and the violence they use is striking, especially if we remember that the available statistics reflect the officer's tendency to overstate the dangers they face and understate their own use of force, both in terms of degree and frequency. The fact that police use more force than they face is incontrovertible. It's left for us to wonder how often the police use violence, in some cases deadly force, that is out of all proportion to the danger they face. The available studies tell us very little about the prevalence of excessive force, but they do indicate that the police use violence more often at higher levels and with deadlier effects than they actually encounter it. This disparity should not be surprising, considering the nature of policing, the imperative to maintain control at all times in every situation, hardly a realistic goal. The training to use escalating levels of force to gain compliance and authority unhindered by genuine oversight. Policing, as I said earlier, is inherently violent. This violence, generally speaking, seems to be of an offensive rather than defensive character. In essence, the police are professional bullies, and like all bullies, the thing they most fear is an even fight. As Kenneth Bradley, a Miami-Dade Metro officer, sees it, quote, I don't get paid to get hurt, and I don't get paid to fight fair, unquote. No wonder, then, that the violence used by the police far outstrips anything used against them. And there's a figure here, figure A, deaths per 100,000 workers in 2000. Timber cutters, 122.1. Mine workers, by industry, 30.0. Truck drivers, 27.6. Agricultural workers, by industry, 20.9. Groundskeepers, 14.9. Police, 12.1. All workers, 4.3. Institutionalized brutality. Given such pervasive violence, it's astonishing that discussions of police brutality so frequently focus on the behavior of individual officers. Commonly called the rotten apple theory, the explanation of police misconduct favored by police commanders and their ideological allies holds that police abuse is exceptional, that the officers who misuse their power are a tiny minority, and that it is unfair to judge other cops, or the department as a whole, by the misbehavior of the few. This is a handy tool for diverting attention away from the institution, its structure, practices, and social role, pushing the blame instead onto some few of its agents. It is, in other words, a means of protecting the organization from scrutiny, of avoiding change. Despite the official insistence to the contrary, it is clear that police organizations, as well as individual officers, hold a large share of the responsibility for the prevalence of police brutality. Police agencies are organizationally complex, and brutality may be promoted or accommodated within any or all of its various dimensions. Most formal and informal aspects of an organization can help create a climate in which unnecessary violence is tolerated or even encouraged. Among the formal aspects contributing to violence are the organization's official policies, its identified priorities, the training it offers its personnel, its allocation of resources, and its system of promotions, awards, and other incentives. When these aspects of an organization encourage violence, whether or not they do so intentionally or even consciously, we can speak of brutality being promoted from above. This understanding has been well applied to the regimes of certain openly thuggish leaders, Bull Connor, Richard Daly, 
Frank Rizzo, Daryl Gates, Rudolph Giuliani, to name a few, but it needn't be so overt to have the same effect. On the other hand, when police culture and occupational norms support the use of unnecessary violence, we can describe brutality as being supported from below. Such informal conditions are a bit harder to pin down, but they certainly have their consequences. We may count among their elements insularity, indifference to the problem of brutality, generalized suspicion, and the intense demand for personal respect. One of the first sociologists to study the problem of police violence, William Wesley, described these as basic occupational values, more important than any other determinant of police behavior. Quote, the policeman regards the public as his enemy, feels his occupation to be in conflict with the community, and regards himself as a pariah. The experience and the feeling gave rise to a collective emphasis on secrecy, an attempt to coerce respect from the public, and a belief that almost any means are legitimate in completing an important arrest. These are, for the policeman, basic occupational values. They arise from his experience, take precedence over his legal responsibilities, are central to an understanding of his conduct, and form the occupational context with which violence gains its meaning. Unquote. Police violence is very frequently overdetermined, promoted from above and supported from below, but where it is not actually encouraged, sometimes even where individuals, officers, or administrators disapprove of it, excessive and illegal force are nevertheless nearly always condoned. Among police administrators, there is the persistent and well-documented refusal to discipline violent officers, and among the cops themselves, there is the code of silence. In its 1998 report, Human Rights Watch noted the inaction of police commanders. Quote, Most high-ranking police officials, whether at the level of commissioner, chief, superintendent, or direct superiors, seem uninterested in vigorously pursuing high standards for treatment of persons in custody. When reasonably high standards are set, superior officers are often unwilling to require that their subordinates consistently meet them. Unquote. Even where officers are found guilty of misconduct, Discipline rarely follows. For example, in 1998, New York's Civilian Complaint Review Board issued 300 findings against officers. Fewer than half of these resulted in disciplinary action. LAPD Assistant Chief Jesse Brewer told the Christopher Commission, quote, We know who the bad guys are. Reputations become well-known, especially to the sergeants and then, of course, to the lieutenants and captains in the areas. But I don't see anyone bringing these people up and saying, Look, you're not conforming, you're not measuring up, you need to take a look at yourself and your conduct and the way you're treating people and so forth. I don't see that occurring. The sergeants don't, they're not held accountable, so why should they be that much concerned? I have a feeling that they don't think that much is going to happen to them anyway if they try to take action, and perhaps not even be supported by the lieutenant or the captain all the way up the line when they do take action against some individual." Unquote. Rank-and-file cops, likewise, are extremely reluctant to report the abuses they witness. Some of this reluctance surely is a reflection of their superiors' indifference. After all, if nothing is going to come of it, why report it? But their peers also enforce this silence. A National Institute of Justice study on police integrity discovered, quote, a large gap atti between attitudes and behavior. That is, even though officers do not believe in protecting wrongdoers, they often do not turn them in. More than 80% of police surveyed reported that they do not accept the, quote, code of silence, i.e., keeping quiet in the face of misconduct by others, as an essential part of the mutual trust necessary to good policing. 
However, about one quarter, 24.9%, of the sample agreed or strongly agreed that whistleblowing is not worth it. More than two-thirds, 67.4%, reported that police officers who report incidents of misconduct are likely to be given a cold shoulder by fellow officers, and a majority, 52.4%, agreed or strongly agreed that it is not unusual for police officers to, quote, turn a blind eye to other officers' improper conduct. A surprising 6 in 10, 61%, indicated that police officers do not always report even serious criminal violations that involve the abuse of authority by fellow officers, unquote. We should remember that these numbers reflect the reluctance of police to report misconduct when they recognize it as such. Given police attitudes about the use of force, when nearly a quarter of officers, 24.5%, think it acceptable to use illegal force against a suspect who assaults an officer, we can reasonably conclude that police report their colleagues' excessive force only in the rarest of circumstances. I have to this point concentrated on the means by which violence, and excessive force in particular, is institutionalized by police agencies. That is, I've discussed the ways police organizations produce and sanction violence, even outside the bounds of their own rules and the law. This examination has provided a brief sketch on the way the institution shapes violence, but has not thus far considered the implications of this violence for the institution. It seems paradoxical that an institution responsible for enforcing the law would frequently rely on illegal practices. The police resolve this tension between nominally lawful ends and illegal means by substituting their own occupational and organizational norms for the legal duties assigned to them. Wesley suggests, quote, This process then results in a transfer in property from the state to the colleague group. This means of the means of violence, which were originally a property of the state, in loan to its law enforcement agent, the police, are in a psychological sense confiscated by the police, to be conceived of as a personal property, to be used at their discretion. Unquote. From the officer's perspective, the center of authority is shifted, and the relationship between the state and its agents is reversed. The police become a law unto themselves. This account reflects the attitudes of the officers and explains many of the institutional features already discussed. It also identifies an important principle of police ideology, one that, as we shall see in later chapters, has guided the development of the institution, especially in the last half century. But Wesley's theory also raises some important questions. Chief among these, why would the state allow such a coup? The police, the state, and social conflict. We might also ask, to what degree is violence the property of the state to begin with? At what point does the police co-optation of violence challenge the state's monopoly on it? When do the police in themselves become a genuine rival to the state? Are they a rival to be used as in a system of indirect rule, or a rival to be suppressed? Is there a genuine danger of the police becoming the dominant force in society, displacing the civilian authorities? Is this a problem for the ruling class? Might such a development under certain circumstances be to their favor? These are good questions, and we will get to them. For now, let us concentrate on the question of why the state, meaning here the civil authorities, would let the police claim the means of violence as their own. Police brutality does not just happen, it is allowed to happen. It is tolerated by the police themselves, those on the street, and those in command. It's tolerated by prosecutors who seldom bring charges against violent cops, and by juries who rarely convict. 
It's tolerated by the civil authorities, the mayors, and the city councils, who do not use their influence to challenge police abuses. But why? The answer is simple. Police brutality is tolerated because it is what people with power want. This surely sounds conspiratorial, as though orders issued from a smoke-filled room are circulated at roll call to the various beat cops and result in a certain number of arrests and a certain number of gratuitous beatings on a given evening. But this isn't what I mean, or not quite. Instead, the apparent conflict between the law and police practices may not be so important as we tend to assume. The two may at times be at odds, but this is of little concern so long as the interests they serve are essentially the same. The police may violate the law as long as they do so in the pursuit of ends that people with power generally endorse, and from which such people profit. This idea may become clearer if we consider police brutality and other illegal tactics in relation to lawful policing. When the police enforce the law, they do so unevenly, in ways that give disproportionate attention to the activities of poor people, people of color, and others near the bottom of the social pyramid. And when the police violate the law, these same people are their most frequent victims. This is a coincidence too large to overlook. If we put aside for the moment all questions of legality, it must become quite clear that the object of police attention and the target of police violence is overwhelmingly that portion of the population that lacks real power. And this is precisely the point. Police activities, legal or illegal, violent or nonviolent, tend to keep the people who currently stand at the bottom of the social hierarchy in their place where they belong, at the bottom. This is why James Baldwin said that policing was oppressive and an insult. But put differently, we might say that police act to defend the interests and the standing of those with power, those at the top. So long as they serve in this role, they are likely to be given a free hand in pursuing these ends, and a great deal of leeway in pursuing other ends that they identify for themselves. The laws may say otherwise, but laws can be ignored. In theory, police authority is restricted by state and federal law, as well as by the policies of individual departments. In reality, the police often exceed the bounds of their lawful authority, and rarely pay any price for doing so. The rules are only as good as their enforcement, and they are seldom enforced. The real limits to police power are established not by the statutes and regulations, since no rule is self-enforcing, but by their leadership and, indirectly, by the balance of power in society. So long as the police defend the status quo, so long as their actions promote the stability of the existing system, their misbehavior is likely to be overlooked. It's when their excesses threaten this stability that they begin to face meaningful restraints. Laws and policies can be ignored and still provide a cover of plausible deniability for those in authority. But when misconduct reaches such a level as to prove embarrassing, or so as to provoke unrest, the authorities may have to tighten the reins for a while. Token prosecutions, minimal reforms, and other half-measures may give the appearance of change, and may even serve as some check against the worst abuses of authority, but they carefully fail to affect the underlying causes of brutality. It would be wrong to conclude that the police never change, but it's important to notice the limits of these changes, to understand the influences that direct them, and to recognize the interests that they serve. Police brutality is pervasive, systemic, and inherent to the institution. It is also, as we shall see, anything but new.